This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Well, it's great to be with you. This is, I think, the first time we've been with you since you've been in here. Um, the last time uh, I was with you, I got about this far, and then the fire alarm went off, and we stood in the rain. So if you were part of the church then, that was, that was what happened that day. Um, hopefully that's not going to happen to us uh, this morning, because, yeah, well, it's not raining out there, at least, I guess, so that's something. Um, yeah, we live down in Exeter at the moment, and uh, me and my wife and three boys, um, who um, are a little lively, and uh, were the ones shouting out during uh, the notices just uh, before we got onto this. Uh, we love being up here with you, and uh, it's great to have the chance to do that this morning. Um, we're going to go to Luke's Gospel, so if you've got sight of a Bible, that'll be handy for you. Um, it should hopefully appear um, during the message as well. We'll walk through a little bit of that together. And as we come to this, I'm... I'm a pastor, um, and uh, sometimes people look at pastors and they think, wow, people like that must be really godly uh, and must have everything together in life. And I appreciate that probably doesn't happen here because you've got Howard. Um, <laughs> but, but just in case you kind of have the wrong idea, um, me being a pastor means I'm a Christian, means I'm a follower of Jesus, which means there's plenty of mess in my life. Um, there's plenty of sin in my life, there's plenty of stuff in me that doesn't uh, fit, that's out of place, there's plenty of growing left to do in my life, I think. And um, yeah, that's, that's kind of something of, this will be interesting. I, hopefully you can follow along exactly where I am in this, uh, you've got screen there, but that's okay. Because um, I think that that picture reflects, this is my picture of a snob, and uh, it's, it's a picture of the inner me, I think. Uh, that when I think of who I am uh, in my honest moments, this is the kind of attitude that lurks in me. I grew up as a good kid um, in a church-going family um, from time to time and uh, took the view of myself that I was a good person. Uh, and what that meant was that I was a better person than other people. And I could look down on everybody else and I knew what was wrong with them compared to me. I could consider myself uh, to have a good standing with other people, a high view of myself. Maybe uh, some of you can relate to that kind of approach. Or maybe you just know people who are like that, uh, who you know are looking down on you. And uh, I'm aware of that lurking in my heart, and it disturbs me. I don't like that it's like that. And I don't like the way that that hurt means I hurt the people around me. The people I love most, I'm prone to treating badly. Uh, to thinking badly of them, to looking down on them, to wanting them just to live in a way that will serve me. So I love my kids and I love spending time with them. But I find the temptation to rush them to bed because I deserve some time on the sofa. I deserve to rest in the evening. I wonder if you can relate to that experience. It seems like the people I care about most, I love to spend time with them. And yet, those are the people who get most hurt by the darkest things within me. I wonder what that's like uh, for you. I look at other people and I think, don't you know, I'm so devout and so serious. Why are you not taking these things so seriously? 
I wonder what that looks like for you. And the problem, the other problem I have being a snob is that obviously I get things wrong and then people notice that I've got things wrong. And at that point, I just want the ground to swallow me up. I just want to disappear. I can handle being wrong, but if people can see that I'm wrong, then surely that's the worst thing in the world for me. Because when nobody knows that I'm doing stuff wrong, nobody knows what's going on in my heart, then I can pretend like I'm one of the good guys and you should look at me and uh, revere me. But when everyone can see I'm wrong, I just want to die. I just want to disappear. You ever felt that way? Do you ever find that kind of experience in your life? My guess is some of us here would be in that boat. Maybe not all of us, but some uh, might experience that. And my question, I suppose, is, well, how can I change? Is there any hope for someone like me? Is there any possibility of me growing in my love uh, for others? Of me getting down off my pedestal and being able to serve people better? And my hope is that the story we're going to look at in Luke's Gospel this morning might help us with that. Um, It's quite a well-known story. Uh, It's an incident with Jesus and with a man called Simon and a woman whose name we never learn in the story. It's uh, in Luke chapter 7, verses 34 to 50, if you're uh, following along in a Bible. Um, But as I say, it'll be on the screen as we walk our way through it. Jesus, a good man and a scandalous woman meeting together over lunch. That may be a little picture of what we'll do uh, later on. Uh, Two headings uh, for us if you like those kind of things. Um, The first is that we see someone who loved Jesus. She loved Jesus. Um, You'll notice just as we do this for pacing here, um, the first half of this talk is going to get us about two or three verses through this uh, chapter. We'll just pick up the pace in the second half, so don't worry that um, this is going to be a four-hour message or something. It it really won't be. Um, Let me read Luke chapter 7, verse 36 to start with, and uh, we'll see where we go with that. Luke writes the story this way. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard that he was eating there. Luke chapter 7, 36 to 37 at this point. A certain immoral woman. It's an interesting way to describe someone, isn't it? I wonder if you know anybody like that. Perhaps you'd think of yourself like that. Maybe that's your view of yourself. I suppose she's the kind of person that as she walks down the streets, curtains twitch. Now, we can't speculate about her backstory. Luke doesn't tell us quite what her immorality is. But you get the idea, don't you, of what people must have thought of her. The hurt in her life. The guilt, the stigma, the fear. What do people think of me? And What are they saying after I've left the room about me? Must be a horrible situation, mustn't it? And yet here she is in this moment with Jesus. So aware of what's wrong in her life, and yet she's present. Let me tell you a story just to help us to think about what it would be like to be her. Um, let me introduce you to this guy. There we go, yeah. This is, this is Bobo. And uh, Bobo belongs to Sam, who's my middle son. And uh, I managed to sneak Bobo into my bag this morning. And let me tell you about what happened with Bobo just uh, a few weeks ago now. Um, I had taken my kids to bed. I hadn't rushed them particularly that evening. Um, but uh, they'd gone up to bed, and I came downstairs. And I noticed that Bobo was lying on the bottom step. And I thought, that's quite impressive. We got Sam to sleep without Bobo with him. Um, I'll take him up later on. Um, and I walked down and sat down. And as soon as I'd sat down, I heard that pitter-patter of little footsteps coming down the stairs. Uh, and not Sam, but his older brother, Zach, walked in. Zach, it's past bedtime. What are you doing? Excuses. Off you go. And he walked back upstairs, and uh, I sat back down, and then there was a shout. Daddy, someone's put Bobo in the toilet. 
So Em and I, we got up and wandered up, and, and there we found Zach in the bathroom and Bobo in the toilet. He's been washed since then. Um, and, uh, okay, this is interesting. What do we do in this moment? I'm aware of the scene. I know who's out of bed. I know where Bobo was. It's fairly clear how Bobo got in the toilet. But at the first questioning, there's no way that Zachary did it. <laughs> Denial's all round. No, it wasn't me. And at that point, I think we had a little choice as parents. We could have just let it go. It was late. It's a toy in the toilet. It's not the end of the world. But I, we had this little knowing glance between us. And I think Em would have sent him to bed and just left it. And uh, sometimes we'd go the other way around on those kind of incidents. But I, I don't know. I thought there might just be an opportunity to to push a little bit, to get some truth out. So. Son, I love you. How did Bobo get in the toilet? And there was a pause, but a little after that, there came the truth, and that it was me. And it was, it was a remarkable little moment for us. It also brought the confession as to why the biscuit tin had been empty recently, which was you know, a little bonus confession uh, on top of things. I wasn't going for that one. And um, it illustrated to me how confession is, how hard it can be sometimes to tell the truth. Had I been in his position... Would I have told the truth? Would I have felt safe to do that? It's hard, isn't it? Confession's difficult, but it can be a beautiful thing as well. I think it was, a, it was a step forward for us with him. It strengthened our relationship to have that opportunity to, uh, to bring the truth out, uh, to step into the light together. But I wonder, would you hide? Do you hide? Do you cover it up? I think I'm prone to do that. I don't want people to see that I've got something wrong. And I see that my son covers up at first. And I've not taught him to do that, but I guess he's learned it from somewhere. I wonder, what about you? I wonder where that comes from in us. And yet here's the thing in this story that Luke's telling us. This woman's not hiding. She turns up. She's there. I mean, presumably it took a lot to do that. Jesus is in town. She could just stay home, keep her head down. And yet there she is that day. And you get the sense, as we'll read in a moment, that, that Simon, whose house she's at, hates that she's there. And I guess he's representative of a lot of the people in the town. He'll make himself feel better compared to her. And she knows that. Of course she knows that. I wonder, could you be where she was that day? Could you have gone to Jesus? Or would you have run and hide? How would that have worked for you? She's a remarkable example in that she teaches us about church, I think. She teaches us what church can be. That church can be where sinful people go to Jesus. Well, this isn't to be a gathering of the good people, but people who've got all kinds of backstories. You can just turn up. But how does that work? Let me try and tell you a better story about Zach just for a moment. Um, I, uh, I volunteered on a school trip just before Christmas. Uh, Zach's in year two, and uh, the year two kids were going to the mosque. And uh, so I thought, I've, I've got a flexible working, I'll, I'll volunteer, I'll go along to Exeter Mosque. Uh, with him and wow my respect for teachers I mean I'm married to a teacher but that day watching a bunch of 42 year two children being escorted by a couple of teachers and some hapless volunteers like me I mean teachers are amazing (laughs) um, to be able to handle that Um, and they do it all day long and I was just there for a couple of hours Uh, and we went to the mosque and we watched um, the lunchtime prayers uh, and then the imam came and explained what had been going on to this bunch of 42 kids and uh, which was fascinating and respect to him for being able to hold their attention most of the time. And most of what he talked about concerned two things. One was about traditional toothbrushes, uh, which I think just was interesting to a bunch of six-year-olds. 
as to how you know, using a stick to clean your teeth would work. But the rest of it was all about the washing before prayer. And I was fascinated. I was sat next to Zach, and he was, why do you need to do that? Why would you need to clean yourself up to go and talk to God? Because Zach has had the privilege I haven't had of spending his early years in a Christian context of hearing about Jesus. He said, can't we just run to our daddy? Isn't that what praying is? When we're all messed up, we don't have to clean up first. What a profound insight from the child to have spotted that and to notice that in contrast to what was going on there. And I wonder if this woman in this story gets that too. She knows that she's in a mess, but she doesn't clean up first. She just turns up. She's there. And sometimes people think church is for those kind of people who can fake that they're good people. Because everyone's faking when it looks like they're good people. Because we're all messed up in lots of ways. Or churches for the kind of people who have somehow managed to wash themselves enough that in this moment they're sort of clean. I wonder what you think about that. I wonder what you think church is for. What do you want church to be like, for that matter? And would you want someone like the woman in this story to come to God First Church? What if she's the person sat next to you? I think she shows us what, what church is. The church is for messy people to meet Jesus in their mess. Jesus is someone who came and got his feet dirty walking in our streets. And in this story, we see he welcomes the company of messy people like this woman. And Simon, the host of that party, and me and you. See, in this story, this woman goes to Jesus, and here's what happens next. She's there, and then verse 37, she bought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. And then she knelt behind Jesus at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet. She wiped them off with her hair. And then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. She brings this beautiful alabaster jar. She bought the best thing that she had. Maybe it was the profit from her immorality. We don't know that. But she goes all in. There's no going back. These kind of jars didn't have a lid. You had to smash them to open them. So it's done. This, this beautiful, precious thing to her is wasted in this moment. It's poured out. It's gone. It's a little picture of repentance of faith. And can you picture her, her face? She's tear-stained, she's weeping, her hair is matted with the dirt off Jesus' feet and the perfume. She looks a mess. She's a model Christian. She's a model of what it looks like to follow Jesus, someone who's full of the Spirit, who's led by her heart, who's passionate. It's beautiful. It's genuine. And it's counted the cost. It's cost her something precious. I wonder what would that look like in your life to show that kind of devotion. Let me tell you about the day I proposed. This is not an account of my finest hour. Um, this is hard for me because I don't like to tell stories of how I've messed things up in life, but here we go. I had wrestled for ages over whether I was ready to get married or not, and um, when I finally got to the point of realizing, yes, I was probably several months behind um, at this point, and we just had lunch at Pizza Hut. Yeah. Uh, we were both doing kind of voluntary years. We had very little money, um, and I had wined and dined her in style at Pizza Hut. And uh, I knew you can't propose a Pizza Hut. I mean, I got that much. And if you did, I'm, uh, well, good luck. Um, but I was pretty sure that that wasn't going to work. And um, so kind of quick thinking, we're in Bath at this point, so beautiful context of the city where we'd met. And um, it's a September evening, uh, 2001, and uh, the sun is flickering through the trees. So quick thinking, I'm like, Jane Austen's house is just up the hill from Pizza Hut. The Royal Crescent's just around the corner from there. 
So let's go for a walk. And I get us to this perfect location. Um, this is the circus, the Royal Crescent's down one way, Jane Austen's house is down the other way, there's trees, the light, it's, it's just a beautiful moment, and then I open my mouth. And now I open my mouth for a living, this is what I do, talking. But at that point, out comes the most incoherent gobbledygook. It was just awful. And then somewhere in the middle of it, I, I got the words out, I think I want to spend the rest of my life with you. Anne was playing hard to get, there was no way she was taking that for a proposal. Quite rightly so. And eventually I got the words out, and... I wasn't on one knee at that point, um, but thankfully she didn't make me take a third run at it. Uh, and she said yes. And I had bumbled and mumbled my way through uh, some of the most important words that I've probably ever said. I'd expressed my heart. It was genuine. I really meant what I was saying. It just all came out in the wrong way. But I think it was something of a moment of faith and devotion, of entrusting myself to her. I felt incredibly vulnerable, even though I knew how safe I was. We talked about this, this moment for weeks and weeks beforehand. It's what devotion can do, isn't it? It's what faith can be like. Can't worship sometimes be like that? I mean, neat and tidy is good. There's, there's nothing wrong with being clear and thoughtful. But sometimes word vomit is really just the best you can do. My first experience of church um, was in Bath, um, in, uh, in a church that met in a massive 1930s cinema. It's a beautiful building. Um, it wasn't what I was expecting. I was told the church met in a cinema, and I come from a little town, so I was thinking some little flea pit of a cinema. And I walked into this vast place as an introverted, geeky, very quiet 18-year-old math student and uh, was overwhelmed by the scale of it, but also by the fact that I saw hundreds and hundreds of people just genuinely pouring out praise and devotion to God. I thought, I've got to be with these people. I've got to learn from this. I can't sing very well. I don't know what they're talking about, but... There's something here, there's something real. And I think that's what you see with this woman. She shows us, again, what church can be like. It's where messy people go in their mess. There's no mask, there's no pretending. It's vulnerable, it's weak, and it's honest. And I wonder, can you come to Jesus here on those kind of terms? Is, is that hard for you? Maybe it's what you want, but you're not sure if there's permission to do that. Perhaps you'd rather things were a bit more up together. Can you come like this woman came to Jesus? Can you do that? Can you bring whatever's on your heart, whatever mess that is? Song, prayer, encouragement, completely unseen service. Can you turn up at your best and your worst? I wonder what that would look like for you. And when you look at this woman, I mean, who wouldn't want a love like her? It's this, it's this beautiful moment, and yet how do you get there? How do you get to love like she did that day? To turn up in all your mess and to pour out your devotion like that? How, if you're heard, you move from fear of the people of the town, surely, to faith? What is it that helps her to be a sinner who can go to her saviour? How does that work? She loved Jesus, but how? Well, let's see what the answer is. Here's my second heading. She loved Jesus because she was loved by Jesus. This will take us through the rest of this uh, story. Let's read on verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She is a sinner. Can you sense Simon's disapproval? He's not impressed. I don't wonder if you can picture the awkward grimace on his face. This is his thoughts, it's not what he says. He's holding that in behind his face. Verse 14, then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Gulp. <laughs> Gritted teeth at that moment. I, I, Jesus is being so gentle with him. He could blow him away. Jesus knows what he's thinking. What do you say if you're Simon? Well, he says this, go ahead, teacher. Simon replied. 
don't know what that is. Is that respect? Is it bravado? Does he want to hear? Is he excited or is he terrified about what's going to happen next? I, I don't know. Verse 41, Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people. 500 pieces of silver to one, 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, cancelling their debts. I used to work um, on the counter at Now West Bank, and um, sometimes it wasn't the most interesting of work, but I loved that it was working with people, day in, day out, just constantly in the team, in the bank, but also with customers. Uh, and money's just an open door into understanding people's hearts. It's just remarkable what it tells you about people. Um, I'll always remember the customer who would bring in ID to withdraw five pounds because it's a big amount of money. And on the other end of the spectrum, the person who protested at any security questions for so little an amount as £10,000. And then there was the woman whose bills I was paying, who it transpired had got £25,000 worth of credit card debt. I'll never forget the change in her face that morning. She came in, she, you could see she was tired. See the weight of the world on her shoulders. She clearly wasn't sleeping. She couldn't figure out how was she going to go on with such a debt. And, you know, that kind of thing doesn't happen in a moment. She built her way up to that over a long time. Heavy-shouldered, just couldn't work out how to live. And, and then as she walked out, the visible relief when we'd helped her to find a plan, a way to clear that debt. And let's be honest, the bank was going to make some money out of that. We were restructuring her payments. We weren't cancelling them. But we'd offered her a pathway. We'd offered her a way to find her way out of what seemed like a, a hole so deep there was just no way out for. What does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't restructure debt. He's not in that kind of business. The story of Jesus is about the debt of sin, and that's bigger than any financial debt. It's bigger than a £25,000 credit card. It's bigger than our national debt. And with Jesus, it gets cancelled completely. I mean, wow. Is that how you see Jesus? Do you see him as the one who cancels debt? Imagine if you let Jesus loose in your life. What would that be like? The debt canceller came in and wiped out all the debt of sin, of all the wrong in your life. The visible relief bringer at work in your life. Can you imagine it? Yet Simon's not there yet. Let's pick up verse 42. Jesus says, who do you suppose loved him more after that. Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he cancelled the larger debt. Simon knows the answer. It's not a difficult story. He sort of knows the answer. Do you? What does Simon see when he looks at this woman? See, this woman is the answer to the question that he's been asked by Jesus. Does he see it? Does he get it? He's got far more in common with her than he realises. See, she knows that all the debt of all of her sin has been cancelled. Her face is stained with tears, and yet there is a visible relief on her face. She knows that she hasn't trusted God. She knows her background. She knows what people call her. And yet Jesus has loved her. Jesus has loved her. He's cancelled her debts. There's no such thing as a free lunch, is there? I'm sure it would be a good lunch later. It's not a free lunch. It's been paid for by our generous hosts, I assume, in this case. Someone always has to pay. And there's no such thing as cancelling debts for free. Somebody has to pay. And for Jesus to come and cancel people's debt, there's a cost in that as well. 
Our sin bankrupts us. It ruins us. I got in debt with no way back. And yet, in that moment, he's exchanged his life for mine. He's given his riches for my poverty. He's offered me a way out. He's done more than just cancel my debt. He's gone further. He's given me his love. And the more debt cancelled, the more love overflows. That's the point of Jesus' simple story. So you look at this woman, what does, what does she know that Simon doesn't know yet? What does she know that you and I don't know? That perhaps we've been pushing away. Does it make you feel uncomfortable to see this woman getting forgiven? You know, at Simon's house, she's the poorest woman in the room. But she's rich in love. And Simon gives the right answer, and then Jesus says this to him in verse 43. That's right. Jesus said, and he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. Ouch. Ouch, Simon. You ever been there? Ever felt Jesus give you an ouch moment? Where's Simon now? Dazed? Exposed? About to kick back? Hang on. Three times Jesus shows that he's failed by comparison. He thought he was the higher mighty guy in the room and yet three times she has shown more love than he did. You ever had that kind of experience with Jesus? Had Jesus do that to you? I think he will. I think it's one of the kindest things he can do for you continues in verse 47, I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love, but a person who's forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Men at the table said among them, who's this man who goes around forgiving sins? Haven't got there yet, have they? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus is he's the God who doesn't chase away sinners. The man at the table, who's this man going around forgiving sins? How outrageous of him. Now this is God with dirty feet. This is God who came into the world to die for us. This is a God better than any God I could ever have imagined growing up and any God that this world has ever imagined. And yet here's Simon, he doesn't think he's much of a sinner. Those stinging words at the end of verse 47, a person who's forgiven little, she shows only little love. That's why you're loveless. Luke says of Simon, he's a Pharisee. He's an important person. He's good, he's well-read. He's a snob, he looks down on everybody else. He knows so little about the sin in his life. And because he's lacking in love, he doesn't love Jesus. And he doesn't love the people of his town. Like this woman. He despises her. He's aloof. He's scornful rather than engaged in her life and involved with her. It's easy to look at him and say, why would he be so disappointed that she was there? 
funny, isn't it? Because Simon is shocked that Jesus allows himself to be near her, but there's no shock in Simon that Jesus came to his house. Jesus would come to my house. And my problem with Simon is that he'd make my skin crawl if I didn't find him quite so familiar. (laughs) If he didn't look quite so much like the guy I see in the mirror each morning. Painfully, horribly, undeniably recognisable in my life as well. And I wonder about you. I wonder where you find yourself. It's an ouch moment, this encounter with Jesus. And yet, in all of this, Jesus is inviting Simon to start again. This is a precious grace moment in Simon's life. Let me tell you about a friend of mine. He, um, he's one of the guys in my church. I'm caring for him, walking with him. And he called me up. Said, I'm, I'm shocked and ashamed. I just smashed up a chair. I got really angry and I smashed up a chair. This is a calm guy normally. Okay. You smashed up a chair. How's your wife? She's okay. She was, it was nothing near her. It wasn't directed at her. I just felt really angry and frustrated and I picked up a chair and smashed it. What had happened to himself? How had this happened? And we talked to her a bit on the phone and we met up afterwards and talked a bit further. And as he began to reflect on what he knows of Jesus, I was really shocked at the outburst of my anger in doing this, but that just showed me what was going on in my heart. I had no idea how frustrated and angry I was until in that shocking moment that an outburst came. And I just wanted to crawl into the corner and hide, he said. And yet put him in this moment with Jesus and Simon and what a gift of a moment if you'll take it. You've just seen something more of who, who you really are and what you're like. You've seen something of your heart. And as we talked back and forth, he began to reflect, well, of course, that's just a little bit of it. There's a whole lot more darkness underneath that. Jesus said what comes out of the mouth or out of the hands is just from the heart and my friend had got a glimpse of his heart, but only just a glimpse. So they go, oh, I'm so much worse than I realised. And yet, to see that, what an opportunity to see that. To start to see, oh, I thought this of myself, I thought I was up here, but actually I'm, I'm, not, I'm not who I thought I was. I thought I was better than other people, I'm not. What a moment of grace. What an opportunity to change. What an opportunity for my friend to run to Jesus, just like this is an opportunity for Simon. I wonder, could you take it? Could you take that moment? See, this woman in this story is in so much better a place than Simon. See, for Simon, there's more sin in Simon than he knows. But there's more love in Jesus than Simon could imagine. In fact, there's more love in Jesus than there is sin in Simon. Far more, there's more sin in me than I know. I've seen some of it. There's more love in Jesus than there is sin in me. And if Simon and if me, well, I think that's true for you too. You're probably worse than you realise. But there's more love in Jesus than there is ever going to be sin and darkness in you. 
what Jesus tells us here. So do you see this woman? Like Simon, do you see her? And do you see this Jesus as he interacts with her? See, they show us what church can be. The church can be a community of sinners who love Jesus because Jesus loved them first. But any love we have comes because he loved us first. And whoever you are, you can be here. That's how church works. You can come to Jesus. He's a beautiful saviour. Seen most beautifully, as we heard from Howard's reading earlier, in the ugliness of his cross. Seen there as he shows the full extent of his love, that Jesus has got time for you and me. He's not frustrated that we turned up. He's not disappointed like Simon was. Now his arms are open. He receives those who come to him. I wonder... Do you open your heart to receive him? Or how much do you feel like you need him and his forgiveness this morning? Do you need a bit of the, the debt cancellor, the visible relief bringer loose in your life? Let me try and quantify a little bit for you. From my props that survived the journey, they were rattling around in the boot. But um, I wonder, I like good coffee, so here's my espresso cup. And. Um, do you think you've got that much need? Yeah, I've got an espresso cup of sin in my life. That's kind of the level of need. That might be where you are. I like coffee. My wife likes tea. And she'll ask for a big mug of tea. This is our biggest mug. And uh, maybe like, no, it's not an espresso cup of need. I've got a big tea mug of need in my life. Maybe that's where you'd be. Maybe it's more like this. Like, truth be told, there's a bucket load of need. So much darkness and sin in my heart, but yeah, it's a bucket and more. Maybe that's where you are. And the thing is, with Jesus, you can have as much of him as you want, as much of him as you realize you need. And you say, oh, but if he really knew me, he'd turn me away. No, he, he does really know you and me. He does. That's why he came. And this story says that whether you're like this woman or like Simon, you can come. Now. To him. You don't have to wait. But he's here for you. But his, his heart is this, that all our sin is exactly why he came and got his feet dirty. It's why he came. That there is always more love in Jesus than there's ever a sense of sin and need in me. There's a Father in heaven who loves to give us his Son by his Spirit. That's, that's what he loves. So if you've got the espresso cup of need, well, actually, here's kind of ways to take a mug of his love and pour it in. Which obviously, I could demonstrate with water, but there's lots of electrical stuff down there, I think, so we won't do that. Um, but he'd pour in a, a mug into an espresso cup, and it would spill out everywhere. Do you see? And maybe it's more like a tea mug. Well, then he'll take a bucket and it'll splosh out everywhere, just like it did for this woman. That's his way of doing it. I need more love in my life. Why don't I love the people around me? Because I think I only need this much of Jesus. And, and he, lo- he still overflows. He still gives me more. But if I could see a bit more deeply who I am, then there'd be even more opportunity in my life. Jesus loves to meet sense of need with abundance. This is how he works.
Let me suggest two ways that we can respond to this. I'm going to pray in a moment. Um, and you don't have a cup of mug and a bucket in front of you, I don't think. Um, but sometimes hands can be an equivalent kind of thing to that. Okay. Yeah, I've got a little bit of my little espresso cup of need Jesus. Can I have some more of you? Maybe a bit more of a mug. Maybe it's just a bucket. I don't know. We'll take a few moments to, to pray and give some quiet. Um, and when we've done that, we're going to come to his table where he offers his, himself to us in bread and wine. And it's the same deal as it is in this story. It's not clean up and then you can come. It's come hungry and he'll feed. Come thirsty and he'll, uh, he'll quench your thirst. Come dirty and he'll clean. Um, so let me t- give us a few moments of quiet. Um, if it's helpful to you, use your hands as a visual aid um, to pray and, uh, and then we'll come and break the bread as well. Father, what a moment of grace we see in this story. This woman who teaches us what it means to come and find salvation, to find our saviour, to come to Jesus. A certain immoral woman, acutely aware of her sin, meeting with a saviour who is full of love, who has abundance of grace and mercy for her. What a wonderful moment, Father. We ask that in this moment, however much you've shown us of the reality of our need, that we would come to you open hands and receive. Thank you that as we do that, you have abundance, that you love to overflow above and beyond all that we could imagine we need of you. And Father, thank you that we do that because of your Son. We do that because he came and his body got broken for us. That we see beauty in what he did for us. Because he met us in our need. And provided himself for us. So Father, would you help us to receive your son again this morning? Whether a first time or again and again. That Father, our confession is we need you We need your love and mercy. We need your son's cross. We need the filling of your spirit. In ourselves we are needy and weak and empty and dark and yet you have abundance and love and life for us. So we come to you in faith. Amen. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.